uh, we have two really amazing guests. So uh, I'm going to introduce them uh, one at a time here. So uh, first up, uh, uh, so he is a longtime community organizer in North Minneapolis. Uh, a lot, before that, he was uh, with the Occupy Homes movement here in Minnesota. Uh, he helped, I love this, this is just a fun fact, he helped create a social media platform to deliver aid in the wake of the 2011 uh, tornado that hit North Minneapolis. Right now, he serves as the executive director of Neighborhoods Organizing for Change. Ladies and gentlemen, a tremendous round of applause for Mr. Anthony Newby. <laughs> It's, it's guest choice. Uh, uh, very good. All right. So, uh, yeah, so good. That, that's fine if that's what you want to do. Um, so, no, no, you're fine. You're fine. You're totally fine. It's great. It's good. It's good. Whatever. Yeah. We're off to a good start. So, um, uh, our second guest, uh, 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 this is a woman who uh, her bio would not fit on a note card, but uh, the best I could do was uh, professor of law at the University of St. Thomas, where she's the founding director of the Community Justice Project. She's also the co-founder of Brotherhood Incorporated, a nonprofit geared towards young African-American men. Uh, and she is now the president of the Minneapolis double, uh, NAACP. Ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause for Miss Dr. Nikima Levy Pounds. Thank you. Oh my gosh, so thank you. Uh, I'm so uh, so thrilled. Thank you both so much for being here. Um, uh, I, I, I a lot of times I actually like to start out shows. Uh, by asking folks who we get on uh, who have jobs that we've all heard of, so, uh, you know, state senators or, or uh, executive directors of organizations, what it is that you actually do, and are you tweeting already? Like, we just... That's good. That's good. We need people to tweet during the show. I'm, I just usually... I don't bore people usually that early in the show, uh, but... Uh, no, it's gonna... So, uh, your jobs both seem particularly challenging and amorphous because they are both sort of everything and then I don't I don't know how to qualify it. so when you sort of explain to people what you do what how, what do you say what do you how do you explain what you do on a daily basis to to somebody at the airport <laughs> I don't get asked that often at the airport but if I did uh, I'm the director of a of a community-based organization and we do racial justice work we do economic justice work and where the two of those overlap uh, is where we do most of our work. Um, so we operate in a space that's there's a long history of community organizing in this country, and we like to think we are um, the newest and in some ways the best version of that historical legacy. Mm, uh, yeah, not to throw down or anything against, <laughs> but uh, I, I, not the only best. Not the we only. Are, we, we, are, well, we are among the best by definition. But uh, no. <laughs> uh, and how? I mean. You have about twelve different hats, and so uh, which I don't know. How do you? How do? How do? I guess let me ask it this way because I know your son's in the mm. audience. How does your son tell people what mom does for a living? That's a good question. <laughs> I would say um, so. He tells people that I'm a lawyer, and he he actually tells them Google my mom, Google my mom. And I'm like, no, you know, don't. <laughs> no. Um, but I would say he probably sees me as somewhat of 
an agitator for justice um, and an advocate for civil and human rights. So I would say in a nutshell. That's, agitator is very good on a business card. I like that a lot. Um, yeah. So let, let, let me talk about uh, neighborhoods organizing for change because I think one of the things that's uh, surprising to a lot of folks is the fact that neighborhoods organizing for change really is a young organization. Uh, and so can you just give us, uh, to set the table, sort of uh, the, the birth story, the origin story, if it were a superhero, which it could be, uh, <laughs> of neighborhoods organizing for change? So it started in 20, 2010. Uh, you know, it, it was birthed out of the ACORN organization. So those who are familiar with that, it was a national organization. Uh, it, one of its claims to fame was registering a lot of voters, a lot of black voters throughout the nation, over a million voters in Ohio alone. That organization uh, went under slash was, uh, was tanked by some uh, a white uh, right-wing agenda. And coming out of that, there was uh, a certain number of states that wanted to pick up on that energy, recreate it, reinvent it. Minnesota was one. NOC was one of those organizations. I was not around for that, <clears throat> that origin. Um, but really, since 2013, we've grown a lot. We've expanded a lot. We've taken on issues outside of electoral politics. Um, and I think we carry some of the best of what ACORN had to offer, but also some radically different cultural changes that make us different and unique. So this is actually a great uh, point to uh, to try and tie together a couple things because you noted that we have a very long history, obviously, in this country of uh, grassroots activism and, and people rallying around <clears throat> issues. But it does seem, at least to me, like we are living right now in a moment where there is a lot of energy around people coming together around uh, particular issues and uh, sort of finding each other uh, and wanting to do something about it that feels, at least to me, different than it did maybe even five years ago, definitely ten years ago. And so I'm wondering if you all can, either of you could talk to that as to sort of uh, where that energy comes from. Well, I definitely agree with Dutain that there is a new energy that's present. <clears throat> I would say that it really started with the shooting death of Trayvon Martin at the hands of George Zimmerman. That sent shockwaves throughout the nation because it reminded us as African-Americans of what happened to Emmett Till, who was a young African-American boy um, who was killed at the hands of white vigilantes um, in um, April of 1955. And um, the, the folks who killed Emmett Till were never brought to justice, and this was in Money, Mississippi. And so when, when uh, Trayvon Martin was killed at the hands of George Zimmerman, it definitely reminded us of that particular travesty of justice and also the fact that some things have changed, but a lot has not changed in terms of um, the issues that we sometimes continue to face as African-Americans. Um, and then we know that in April of 2014, when Mike Brown was killed at the hands of Darren Wilson, that caused a resurgence of youth activism uh, from Ferguson you know, all the way to the Twin Cities of Minneapolis. Um, and even internationally in terms of folks willing to mobilize and to stand for justice. That was very good. I, I mean, <clears throat> you know, it's, hard, it's, hard, it's hard to add to that, but, but I would say there's the, the, the divide between those who have and have not is as bad as it's been since the Great Depression. In some ways, <clears throat> uh, it's worse in, in many ways. If you're a people of a person of color anywhere in the nation, let alone Minneapolis, Minnesota, those gaps are as broad as they are anywhere in the nation. 
<clears throat> and so there's crisis levels of inequality tied to crisis levels of outrage uh, and anger, and people want a place to park that and put that that's productive and where they feel like they're part of something beyond their own angst and, and anger. And we're seeing that nationally play out, but it's also true here. And there's, you know, Minnesota has a long history of community uh, organizing, um, and I think we just fit right along with that historical legacy. And unfortunately, given those disparity gaps, there's a moment that really is crying out for some infrastructure and some uh, container, some vessel to hold this energy where people know there's a problem, they just don't necessarily know what to do about it, they want to feel like they're part of something. That's, uh, I love that you brought up the, the sort of national, local thing, because uh, that's one of the things I find so uh, really interesting, and I, I wonder, my, my guess was that it maybe in some ways it's an opportunity, and in other ways it's challenging to have a movement that both is trying to tackle really big, broad, systemic things that are at least national, if not, you know, sort of society-wide, and at the same time, things that are really local and in a community, and trying to sort of, uh, it's almost like, where do you start, I guess? Well, I think it's important for us to pay attention to what happens nationally, because what happens in other parts of the country and other parts of the world inevitably affects us as well. We're taught that we live in an individualized society where we're really just supposed to be focused on ourselves. But I would argue that that's certainly not the truth, as we saw during the 1960s, um, when young people from across the country saw what was happening in places like Jackson, Mississippi, which is where I'm originally from, where um, African Americans were historically denied the right to vote. And so you had college students from around the nation, including northern places, who got on buses they went to Mississippi, they registered people to vote, and they put their lives on the line. Because where folks are not free in one part of the country, we're not free anywhere. So I think that it's important for us to understand that. And that was part of why um, last November, after the grand jury decided not to indict Darren Wilson, that I signed up to go to Ferguson, Missouri, as a legal observer through the National Lawyers Guild. And that was, it became really real in terms of the struggle um, the first night there being tear gassed wow. and um, watching young people be tear gassed. And while I'm trying to gasp for air and, you know, gather myself, they're dusting themselves off and getting right back on the front lines and mm -hmm. protesting and marching and holding signs. And, and I said, you know, if they can do it, then I can do it when I return back to the Twin Cities of, of Minnesota. Um, so watching those young people and realizing that Many of them were from Ferguson or the St. Louis area, but others had come from around the country. They made what happened to Mike Brown their fight. Right. And I think that that's the attitude that we all need to have when we're talking about matters of justice and inequality. And uh, I, Yes, yes. Uh, I, 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 I know neighborhoods organizing for change is a Minneapolis-based uh, and, and Twin Cities-based. So uh, how do you sort of, because as you mentioned, it's sort of a, a holding place in some ways, or it's a vehicle for a lot of the energy and passion people have around these national issues. So uh, is, I guess I'm asking, is part of your job trying to direct that towards places where you can make local change? And if so, how do, how do you do that? Yeah, we try not to do it from sort of the top down. We try to respond to issues that pe real people are dealing with in, in the community. So with, uh, with Terrence Franklin uh, or, uh, um, around the time of the Trayvon Martin uh, incident, <clears throat> there were local incidents happening here. 
And so our job then became to, to be a place, a movement hub, where people who wanted to grieve, who wanted to respond, who wanted to, to uh, funnel some of their anger in a particular way, they could come to the office, they could meet with our organizers. And, and those, in part, turned into big public events where there were you know, 6,000 people uh, when Trayvon uh, uh, Martin was killed, Nakima spoke there at the University of Minnesota. But it started from a very small uh, and national issue uh, that's hyper-local in a way. That was very like, it was a Florida neighborhood issue. Yeah. Our job is to harness those local issues often send ripples and shockwaves out through the rest of the nation. Our job is to harness it, contain it, and see if we can turn it into something meaningful and more importantly, uh, systemic change. What are the things that we can really shift power in these moments beyond just a vent and an outlet or a protest, how yeah. do we fun fundamentally restructure uh, the way we think about politics and our economy? So uh, this might, but how do we uh, change things systemically and reshift power uh, to uh, local communities? I don't know where <laughs> I got that. that. Uh, no. That's great. That's great. You said, how, how do you Yeah, do and if you could, you know, in like 10 seconds or less, I mean. With you all's help. I mean, nothing gets done without, without a movement of people. And, and increasingly, we think even, even locally, our office is in North Minneapolis, but increasingly, it's not just issues that we're dealing with on Broadway Avenue or in the local neighborhood. Those issues actually are citywide issues. They are statewide issues. And what's exciting about this room is we've got some staff here. I don't think we've spent a lot of time lately in Uptown organizing, but we're here now. So this is, this is so great. Like, so how do we get you all involved yeah, is the so question. That, no, that's actually a great question. And I, I'm worried because uh, this has been such a good conversation. Uh, I want to get to some of the actual sort of things that have been happening yeah. more recently. But yeah. uh, that's a great question because one of the reasons we started the Theater of Public Policy is because I care a lot about getting uh, conversations to be broad, to be things that uh, anybody can feel like they can come and have a conversation about this. And so I wonder in this kind of stuff that's very hard sometimes and very challenging, you know, how – uh, how do you make it so that it's something that people feel like, oh, I have a place uh, to contribute or to help or to, yeah. to be a part of this? I mean, I'll give one example, and then I know you all have, and Akeem has got a ton of examples, and we worked together on some, but one is a package called Minneapolis Works that really came from a, a base of workers throughout our network in the different parts of the city, largely workers of color, coming into the office and saying, we're experiencing these set of things at the workplace. If we have a job, it's a low-paying job, if we have a job, we have to have multiple jobs and we're juggling schedules. That makes it impossible for us to navigate a personal life, a home life, a family life, because it's unpredictable. We don't know from day to day uh, often where we're going to work. We don't have paid time off uh, to go to my kids' conferences. Or uh, if I get sick, I can't take time off to be with my, with my uh, child. It's at, I'm at the mercy of my manager. So there was just a, a set of conditions that were packaged up and it's now a movement throughout the city. There are unions that have signed on. Uh, Nakim has been at various events. There are student groups. Um, and the goal is really to get the city to fundamentally wrestle with this. Policymakers who actually have the ability uh, to make an impact 
to shape a set of policies that really get to the heart of some of these disparities it's, in the city. And so something along – is there sort of a, a set of policy prescriptions that are along with that, or is it bringing up the conversation or both? There, it's both. It's both community organizing, but it's also a set of policies literally crafted and in front of lawmakers right now that are uh, a deep dive. We work with national partners to pull together a set of policy provisions driven by workers, vetted by workers, signed off on by workers, ushered through by workers every step of the way. And it's now in front of city council and the mayor. And they're making a set of decisions on what, si what type of city fundamentally we want to live, live in. One with the deepest divides, racial divides in the country in many ways, or one where we work on collectively together on policies that help get us out of this mess and towards a, a better, more productive city. And so I, I, I have to ask about uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has very much uh, uh, has been, I think, very innovative uh, in raising awareness around all these things. And there have been a lot of things that have been very controversial about the ways that they've tried to raise uh, awareness. And we talked a little bit. Controversial? Uh, <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Uh, uh, so we talked a little bit backstage. I'm fine. It's going to be okay. Um, uh, about uh, the uh, Twin Cities Marathon, and the, that is that they just uh, just to throw it out oh, there. That old thing. That old thing. Um, but I. I I, I'm interested in, in hearing more about that, but then just sort of the strategy, because I think that it's hard because you do, I, I totally understand the, the desire to want uh, and the, the necessity of making this part of people's everyday conversations, and yet uh, that inherently is tense and challenging. So uh, I should have thought of a way to phrase this as a question, but you're smart. You can do it. <laughs> Well, before responding to the question about Black Lives Matter, I just want us to give the, stack, the, the staff of Neighborhoods Organizing for Change a round of applause. Oh, my goodness. Honestly, you guys have no idea of how many hits they take day in and day out to just stand for justice on behalf of workers. They've been through a lot over the last year. Shall I say hashtag Pointergate, if you don't remember... You know, what happened, how uh, Neighborhoods Organizing for Change made national news because um, one of their African-American canvasser, canvassers was posing with the mayor, and then suddenly, you know, KSTP5 said the mayor was in a gang, and on and on. And we still won't do interviews with KSTP5. None of us will. Never in Until life. they apologize, at a minimum, for Pointergate. And then, you know, with your office burning down, and in the midst of all those things, they've continued to persevere and stand for justice, and they stand alongside workers and also Black Lives Matter. So I just had to shout you guys out for everything that you do on behalf of the community. Um, in terms of Black Lives Matter, yes, there have been some aspects of controversy uh, surrounding our work. I think it all started um, with when we shut down I-35. And we, I remember that day because um, that was my first time participating um, in the shutdown of a freeway. And we had the state troopers. Can I just say the first time? Like, <laughs> as though it's like, you know, there were, uh, we've all shut down highways at different points. But I was, I was new to this, so. I was definitely, I was a novice at it. Now I know, you know, how to do now it. Now I know how to do it, so, you know, <laughs> exactly. just for fun sometimes. Yes, anyway, yes. Uh, I'm sorry. So if St. Thomas doesn't give me a raise, hey. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But, no, the reality is that that was my first time, you know, being involved in something like that. And I remember 
being on that highway and we had the state <clears throat> troopers, you know, driving alongside of us, basically telling us that if we did not get off the freeway at the next exit, that they were going to arrest us. And I remember Misha Grimm, who was one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter, looking and saying, we're going to keep marching until we get to City Hall. And that was very powerful to witness young people just continuing to persevere even under the threat of arrest and, and not really being concerned about the consequences. And so when we marched to City Hall, one of the things that we did was to demand that the equity cuts be put back into the budget. Because even though we have some of the worst disparities in the nation, as you all have intimated, um, some of our city council members were planning to take funding out of the budget that was meant to promote equity. And so we showed up, we held them accountable. There are plenty of YouTube videos with us confronting some of our city council members. Some of them look like deer caught in the headlights. They didn't know what happened. And I, um, I, I will, I mean, just to give city, Ca that would be terrifying to have a group of folks who had just shut down a highway all of a sudden be like, I want to talk to you. I would also, I would also be a little unnerved. Uh, well, we definitely accomplished our goals because a week later, those equity cuts were put back into the budget. So it worked. It worked. That level of activism and engagement, it was from a, a wide variety of stakeholders. I mean, 70% of the folks who've come out to protests and demonstrations have been white Minnesotans, white allies, who are standing with us and saying, we want to see change, that we're tired of the status quo. We're tired of unarmed people of color being killed by police. We're tired of them being subjected to excessive force. And we're tired of the racial disparities. Because here we've gotten into a pattern of admiring the problem in the state of Minnesota. I don't know how many reports have been released, um, how much data we've all had to internalize, how many reports, and yet things don't change. And part of that has to do with the lack of political will to change things and a lack of awareness on the part of the general public as to just how serious these racial disparities are. So I'm proud of the young people um, of Black Lives Matter for standing on the front lines and just continuing to go into places where people don't think the conversation should happen, whether it's the state fair where people are focused on their corn dogs and cheese curds, or whether it's the marathon uh, where we're going and we're saying, listen, there's no place in American society that should be off limits to this conversation. Can I just say, I've, we've been having this show since 2011, and I've never had a moment until now when the entire audience simultaneously goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring both of our guests back uh, in the second half of the show, and we're going to open it up to all of your questions for the two of them. But for right now, can we do a tremendous uh, round of applause for our two guests? And so, uh, if you have a question, uh, raise your hand. I will come to you. I only ask that... Uh, that you uh, that we because we don't have a lot of time, so uh, we want to try and get to as many as possible. So uh, if you have a question, raise your hand, and I will run towards you. Yes, right there. Thank you. Um, my new friend just asked me what were both of your motivations to be an active member and take on the role that you guys have had. Uh, well, I don't. I think probably my entire life I've been oriented in this particular way. Uh, it was the tornado in 2011 that really set me on a path where uh, there was really no other option. The tornado just missed my house. I was at a very particular moment in my life <clears throat> where uh, I lived in North Minneapolis. There was both a man-made disaster 
that was happening to my neighborhood in the, in the, the economic crisis, the foreclosure crisis. It was very close to home, so there was that disaster, then a natural disaster. The two of those together um, left very little alternative for me to do anything else. At that point, I couldn't get another job and not think about this 24-7. It just wasn't an option. So uh, I'd started down this path, and, and thankfully it led to to knock in, in a place where I get to work with some of the most incredible minds uh, uh, in the city and in the state and in the country to think about this round the clock. But it was that confluence of a natural disaster and a man-made disaster that really uh, gave me no other alternative. I would, I would say for me, um, since I was a little girl, I've been focused on issues of civil rights and social justice. When I was... Um, Eight and a half, we moved from Jackson, Mississippi to South Central Los Angeles. And we lived in a mostly um, African-American and Latino neighborhood. And I just saw a lot of the injustices up close and personal just from living in poverty and seeing that our community had been marginalized and left behind. So when I was nine, I decided that I wanted to become a lawyer. And um, I just continued on that path ever since. And that's what fuels me um, to stand up for people who are suffering and marginalized. And I would say what, what got me involved in Black Lives Matter was my trip to Ferguson, Missouri. When that happened to me my first night, it just it changed my life because I had written about the war on drugs, the militarization of our police forces, but I got up close and personal my first night in Ferguson. And I said, I need to get out and be with the young people and, and stand for justice. Cool. Uh, other questions? Uh, okay, well, that will be fun. Oh, well, I can hand it. It's good. I want to know um, what about our community in particular gives you hope for change? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I mean, in some ways, we live in in on paper the most progressive city in the in the country, and and in this neighborhood, and Uptown is like an example of that. Like you. There's, where else can you go? Tane described it. I didn't realize until I walked in. There's a bowling alley, a theater, a bar, a restaurant in one place. That is the definition mind. of progressivism. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's, there's unlimited options. There's resources. There's creativity. Um, there's a, a thriving economy. Unemployment rate is lower than it is in most places. There's an opportunity to move big radical ideas in this, in this city and in this state. Um, there's a lot of barriers to be overcome, and we need to distribute those more, much more evenly than they are now. Um, but there's an opportunity to make this really a, a beacon on the hill for everybody who lives in this city uh, should we decide to take the opportunity to level the playing field and distribute the resources a little more evenly. I would agree with Anthony. I mean, I think this is, of all the places I've lived in the country, I think that the Twin Cities area is the most ripe for change. And a part of that has to do with how active our community is in terms of um, politics, social justice, matters of equity. There's a real opportunity here to shift the paradigm. And I'm energized and enthused by the people who have dusted off their sleeves and just decided, you know what, I'm going to get involved and become active and fight for social change. There's nothing like being at the Mall of America and looking mm. over and seeing mm. a 70-year-old white guy holding a sign that says Black Lives Matter. Mm. You know, to see that up close and personal shows me that it is possible to shift the paradigm in our state. That's very cool. Okay, so there's other questions. Uh, I'll go up here. 
You talked briefly about uh, Minneapolis Works and the, kind of the policy prescriptions. Uh, a couple of those kind of have fallen by the wayside recently. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about uh, which, like, how you think that's gone and where you see that going, uh, both fair scheduling and uh, a living wage have kind of fallen by the wayside. Yeah, well, I mean, recently, for those who don't know, part of Minneapolis Works is there's a fair scheduling provision that would mandate that businesses think through how to make scheduling their employees more equitable. Uh, a lot of uh, high-road employers already do it. They give a couple weeks' advance notice or more to their employees. They don't call them in last minute and expect them to juggle their lives and then, and then punish them when they don't do it. Uh, this ordinance was, we felt, a very simple uh, remedy to a lot of that. Some kinks needed to be worked out. Um, and frankly, the mayor pulled the plug on it recently. In her opinion, it was unworkable. Uh, I think not coincidentally, that decision was made by her one day after some of the uh, most conservative elements in the business world came out with a statement denouncing this policy. Um, so that's the fair scheduling piece. That's, that's an unfortunate uh, moment that we're in, but I also think it's just a moment and we could use your help, frankly. Uh, it is not a political uh, decision only. Uh, this set of policies has been driven by workers, has been driven by workers of color who are in a deep, deep crisis, <clears throat> and nobody in this city should be able to pull the plug unilaterally on uh, an effective solution. So coming out of this, I'd love for you all to think through creative ways, connect with us, uh, connect with others in the neighborhood, Lisa Bender, who's a, a big champion on this, uh, and a, a city council person here, totally gets it. So there are things you can do to keep this thing alive. It's dead in the moment, Just but I think a, it's only a moment. As sort of, well, there, uh, as a political question, I mean, the, uh, the mayor maybe uh, pulled the plug on it rhetorically, but, I mean, it would be a council move one way or the other, right? I mean, the, it, we That's have a right. weak mayor system. That's exactly right. So, so the mayor's statement really... Um, was much less important than the political math on the council. And I think there are folks who support it. Um, I'm looking at Ilhan and Andrew Johnson, uh, who, who has been supportive in the past on a lot of these issues. So it is a question of how to get to a majority on the city council. I think we're, we're close, uh, not only with scheduling, but also with earned sick days and paid time off for folks who are, who are sick and need to take time off. So it is a city council question. Um, politically, but again, it's not just a political question. It is, it is a movement question. It's a question that should be put to the people in terms of what kind of city do we want to live in. The polling is off the charts with these sorts of things. People fundamentally get it. People deserve basic workplace protections. This is not a different moment from folks deciding about an eight-hour work week or the concept of a weekend was radical at one point. We have to remember that. The idea that kids wouldn't work in coal mines was radical. The idea that people couldn't own other human beings was radical. That would destroy the economy and send us <laughs> off a cliff that we could never recover from. We've been in these moments before. We're in one now, and I think we live in a city that over time, the best will rise to the top in the city and we'll get something passed. Well, I think we should do something about it now. <clears throat> How many people in here are on Twitter? Okay, so there are enough people in here on Twitter where you can tweet at the mayor and also some of our Minneapolis City Council members and let them know that you support Minneapolis Works and ask them to support Minneapolis Works. Hashtag MPLS W-O-R-K-S. 
So why don't you do that now as we're waiting for the next question if you want to become engaged? <laughs> Seriously. Join the movement. Don't just come and say you heard good improv and you heard some good speakers. Get involved. Right? All of you are here because you're curious about what the problems are, but also what can be done about it. So this is an invitation to get involved. And we cannot underestimate the power of social media. We see what happened with Pointergate. How getting on Twitter and using that hashtag and using that imagery began to shift the conversation, not only in Minnesota, but also nationally. So don't underestimate the power of your voice through social media. Let them know how you feel. Awesome. So we, I know we have a lot of hands, uh, and we only have a few more minutes. So uh, qu- quickly, uh, if you have hands, uh, I'll come right here. Sure. Oh, yeah. You already pointed at anyway, so. Uh. <laughs> um, I think, um, so it's just still on um, that idea of people getting active and under the Minneapolis works. Like um, earlier, um, Nakima, you had mentioned that like last year, there was a win in regards to the budget, right, with the latte levy. Um, the council members and the mayor heard a lot from the people. And right now in the newspapers, we're hearing council members say that they're hearing a lot from business. And they're saying we've heard some of the workers. And so making sure that they're hearing from all of the workers. Um, and I think, so my question, sorry, um, <laughs> was that, in, in the presidential debate, um, there's a lot of conversations about do um, black lives matter or all lives matter? So, Madam President, I would ask, how do we go about that, answering that question, and why does that still matter? Well, thank you for that question. So, I would say, I mean, we know just as a given that all lives matter. <clears throat> and when we say that black lives matter, we're not negating the fact that every life is important. What we're doing is stating something that really is not obvious in American society, and that's that black lives should matter. But when you look at what's happened historically, when you look at our policies and our laws, and the fact that so many unarmed African Americans have been killed by police, and there has not been accountability, then it is sending the message that our lives really don't matter. So it's important for us to articulate what we want to be true in this society, and that is that every human life is valued equally. And until that is the case, we will continue to declare Black Lives Matter. And we expect our political leaders to do the same. And I do want to see Hillary Clinton say that Black Lives Matter and not just skirt around the issue, especially if she wants our vote. Okay, uh, other question. Quickly, hands if they're... Uh, I'll come over here. Yes, sure. She had her hand up first. I have a specific question for Anthony, but then a general question for both of you. Anthony, I'm curious how you get a paycheck and how your organization is funded. But the question for both of you is, um, or maybe you don't, (laughs) Um, what do you see systemically are the most important things we can do to further change? And I'm thinking about things like increasing the minimum wage or um, retraining of our police forces or wearing body cameras or what, what do you see are the most important things we can do? Um, so how do I get, I want to understand the question. I think it means like, uh, I mean, neighborhoods organizing for change, uh, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's thankless work because we're all, we're all very thankful, but, uh, but it's, uh, how do we sustain, how do we sustain the work? Yeah. So we're fundamentally a member led organization. That means we ask people to pay $10 or more per month. Uh, so we have thousands of those folks, 
about 1,500 of those folks throughout the metro area and growing all the time who pay $10 a month. You all are more than welcome to join, knock as a member, and participate. So that's a foundation. We also get uh, uh, foundation money. There are progressive foundations that increasingly, uh, because of the moment that Black Lives Matter has created, understand the need for organizing, understand the need to resource racial justice organizations, understand that without that, it's very difficult to, to produce systemic change in the political environment, just the nature of our political environment, the, the influence of corporate power in our political system. It's very hard to think radically about how to create systemic change if it doesn't come from the bottom up. And so increasingly, there's more and more attention paid to that. Um, so a combination of membership, individual donations, and, and some foundation funding. And I think that, uh, actually, her question, uh, the second half of her question is a, a really good sort of maybe capstone to say this conversation is, what are the, what are the things uh, to look forward to in the very immediate term? Uh, I know that we've talked a little bit about Minneapolis Works and some of these things, but if you're saying uh, these are the things that we're really working on now and we need help with, and these are the ways that you all can, can get involved, what are those? What do we do, I guess? So I'll list a few. So Minneapolis Works is one, <clears throat> putting pressure on the city for a set of workplace protections. Policing. Nakeem is working independently and with her crew on a whole set of mass incarceration issues, and we support that when we can. We're working at the city of Minneapolis. Quite frankly, we believe that the policing system needs a complete and total overhaul. These minor tweaks are not getting it done. What does that mean? What does that mean, a total means, and complete overhaul? It means, it means to think radically. At one point, I'll make the analogy in this country, again, back to slavery. There was no way to think outside of that system without thinking so radically and so creatively about what an economy and what a world could look like outside of it. It forced to get to that point. It required such a leap of faith uh, that most people couldn't see beyond how to tweak sort of the plantation structure. And it got bogged down for centuries in these minor tweaks. And eventually we had to say we need to think radically outside of that system. I think we're at a moment with policing where we need to think about police, uh, uh, local community policing models. Or community uh, control of the police. Community control of police. How do we think about uh, ways outside of punitive models of justice? Outside of you've done something wrong, now I get to decide your fate, and it's, it's going to be behind bars, and certain people are going to profit from that. It's not working. So transformative models, uh, Nakima can talk more about that in, in terms of policing. The economy, raising wages in this country. We are going the, the wrong way since the 70s at least. Wages are not keeping up, even with inflation and the gap between the rich and poor. We need to think radically about the economy, not just minor tweaks, but how do we uh, get on a path to a much more sustainable economy? Environmental justice. None of this is going to matter if the, if the temperature keeps warming up and life oh, as geez, we know it. Oh, jeez, it's 8.05. The show ends <laughs> and you just brought up climate change. So, 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 but these are, these are things that impact real people's lives. And if we don't do anything about it, any one of these things, and, and the list could go on and on. We just had a meeting where we named 27 things. 27 individual issues that people are deeply impacted by, and all of them we can influence. All of them people in this room can influence to a great degree. It just takes rolling up our sleeves and, and, uh, and making a decision that we're going to do something about it. 
I would agree with all of the things that Anthony articulated, but I think the first thing that we should do on Black Friday is go back to the Mall of America. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm just no, I really am just kidding because we do have pending charges. <laughs> so y'all can go back to the mall. <laughs> That's the first time pending charges has gotten that big of a laugh. So, Hey, I still have five charges, but if you all go back, I'll go back with you. I'm not even worried about it. Mm. Um, I'll continue to go stand and fight for justice because Dr. King was arrested, what, over 40 times. And then that day, December 1st, 1955, when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat, we applaud her, but we forget that she had a mugshot for what she did. So sometimes that's the risk that you take when you're fighting against an unjust system. Um, So I would say on top of what Anthony has said, we do need to push for equal wages. And part of that has to do with some of the jobs that are out there. They need to be restructured because um, some of the qualifications might ask for a bachelor's degree or higher when really the job could be done with, for, by someone with a high school diploma or less. So we need to recalibrate those positions and make sure that they make sense for um, what our current population looks like. We also need to make sure that we're not building more prisons. There's a conversation right now at the legislature about whether or not to build a new prison. And this is while other places around the country are going in the other direction trying to figure out how to decrease their prison population. We're actually talking about increasing our prison population, which I think is a huge mistake. So Senator Lass has convened some folks at the legislature to look into this issue. I think that he, he needs to hear from you all if you think that building a new prison is the wrong idea, uh, which that's the perspective that I take. I also think we need to increase youth employment opportunities. So often the talents of our young people go by the wayside when they're outside of school or sports, but many of our kids want to work, but there are very few jobs in which they can work. I mean, even during the summertime when they sign up for youth employment through the city, they have to turn kids away because they don't have enough employment opportunities available to them. And I think that that needs to change. I also agree with Anthony that we need to fundamentally overhaul our system of policing. We have too many police officers um, who are stationed in inner city communities. And sometimes when they don't have enough work to do, they just write tickets. So you're spitting on a sidewalk, as we saw um, in the city of Minneapolis, you can be given a ticket for something as simple as that. Thankfully, one of my law students who's in the audience was one of the key people who helped do the research Um, to push for an um, overhaul of that law in the city of Minneapolis. So now you can spit whenever you want to, and you won't get arrested. So thank you, Jay. But not not in here. Right, not in here. But you can spit, you can lurk. I mean, really. Just just not in. I don't know what lurking actually means. Nobody knows what it means. But the point is, for spitting and lurking, you could be given a ticket and brought into the justice system. It was used as a pretext to stop young African-American men. There are a lot of other laws like that on the books, We need people to step up to the plate, to show up at City Hall, and let them know we're not going to allow Jim Crow laws in the city of Minneapolis, because that's what they are. They're Jim Crow laws, and they need to be overturned. Ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause. Dr. Nakima Levy-Pounds, Anthony Newby. We're going to get off the stage.
Thank you for listening. Our show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to see us in person, you can find our schedule by going to www.t2p2.net or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks.